Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. And the big development that has happened actually isn't in the courts. It's in the area of artificial intelligence. There was sort of a bombshell announcement in the first week in October that the city of San Jose has signed on with Benchmark Analytics. This is a Chicago-based company. And the city will be using Benchmark Analytics First Sign, is what it's called, Early Intervention System. I'll post both uh, a link to the article as well as to Benchmark Analytics webpage so you can check it out. So what is the First Sign Early Intervention System? It's a database system uh, that is designed to identify which officers will fail in the future. And by fail, this could be uh, officers that are subject to discipline for various reasons, could be officers who are sued. There's a broad definition of when officers uh, present what is called a, quote, major adverse, end quote, situation. Uh, Benchmark Analytics claims that its early warning system can predict 85% of all major adverse investigations before they actually happen. What sort of data is Benchmark Analytics going to take into account? They'll take into account what they refer to as officer attributes. I can't find that defined on the web page, but you can imagine what many of the officer attributes would be. The officer's arrest history. How many arrests does the officer make? The officer's use of force, the number of internal affairs complaints, uh, data from uh, computer-assisted dispatch, and also something that Benchmark Analytics calls its management system. So what goes into the management system? Well, to begin with, there will be an officer profile. And what goes into that? Uh, Benchmark Analytics says that the officer profile manages and tracks employment-related details, such as demographic information. We don't know what goes into that. Uh, assignment history, a record of whatever equipment has been assigned to the employee, all reports that mention the employee in one place or another, and customized officer sections such as disciplinary history, line of duty injuries, and even whether the officer engages in outside employment. Okay, that's a lot of information, but that's only part of what goes into uh, the benchmark management system. In addition, all performance evaluations go into this uh, uh, system, as well as information that is provided by community engagement. What's that? Uh, that's tracking public feedback about the officer. 
Uh, of course, internal affairs investigations and data will go in. Uh, the, in addition to use of force data, uh, benchmark analytics says it will capture uh, not just whether force was used, but the type of force, firearm, taser, chemical weapons, impact weapons, canine deployment, whether or not the officer engaged in de-escalation processes, or at least attempted to do so, how often an officer displays a weapon uh, and reports on the force that was encountered and the force that was used, which will lead to uh, an assessment by benchmark analytics of the proportionality of the force. This is just using reports uh, that benchmark analytics will be doing. So all that data gets put together, gets analyzed by a program using uh, artificial intelligence and will predict, so says benchmark analytics, 85% of the time whether an officer will fail in the future. Uh, one thing that's very interesting about this is the newspaper article that we're posting gives no indication of whether or not the police union, which is the San Jose Police Officers Association, whether or not the union negotiated anything with the city about the use of this program. Uh, there is a long quotation from a public relations person employed by the union saying the union agrees with the benchmark analytics contract and that the union believes that the contract is a, and I'm quoting, very effective approach, end quote. I would just hope from the standpoint of being a union lawyer that there is a written agreement between the employer, City of San Jose, and the union as to how this data will be used and in particular whether officers are going to be subject to the disciplinary process when benchmark analytics is merely predicting that the officer will fail in the future, but the officer actually has not failed. You can only hope that such an agreement is in place. And as I said, there's nothing in the article that indicates whether it is or whether it isn't. When I look at this, I think this is kind of a first step in how artificial intelligence is going to be used in the public safety environment. Uh, unless unions are there negotiating and negotiating up front on how this sort of program, this sort of data is going to be used, you can expect to see employers attempt to discipline and even terminate employees before they engage in any actual misconduct. Uh, we've recommended to our clients, you need to be monitoring whether or not employers are purchasing these sorts of programs. And once you get any inkling that that may be in the works, you should be asserting the right to bargain. Because of course, this sort of tracking, this sort of information about employees not only has disciplinary ramifications, which are negotiable, it also has 
what labor boards called surveillance ramifications, where an employee's behavior is constantly monitored. And surveillance is also typically a negotiation subject. So more on this in the future, but this is a major city agreeing to one of the most thorough, you might even say invasive, uh, forms of artificial intelligence in the workplace. We'll see how this develops. Next up, and probably not unrelated in the future, what's going on in the recruitment and retention crisis out there? Uh, and I did a search this morning before recording this podcast to see how cities were attempting to deal with recruitment and retention, at least how they were attempting to do so in the last few weeks. Uh, and it seems the most favored tactic is to attempt to encourage lateral transfers to come into a public safety agency. Uh, and I'm not referring to simply law enforcement agencies now uh, because we're seeing recruitment and retention problems all across the public safety world. We see it with dispatchers, we see it with firefighters, we see it with public safety agencies, and of course, we're seeing it mostly with law enforcement. So what, what are employers offering lateral uh, transfers or potential lateral transfers? Uh, by way of encouragement. And all of the stories in the last few weeks have been about just pure money. So I'm going to give you the numbers. Um, and we start, I'm going to start at the low end and end up at the high end. The low end in the last few weeks was a small city, only 3,400 people live there, outside of Austin, offering a $5,000 lateral bonus for a, a new hire with prior police experience. Uh, is a $5,000 lateral bonus for anybody who's remotely close to the Austin, Texas area and the incredible cost of living in Austin, is that going to attract many people? I suspect this city, Liberty Hill, Texas, may well be revisiting the amount of the lateral bonus. Uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, non-union city. There's no police unions in Alabama. Uh, Tuscaloosa is offering a retention bonus of $15,000 to all existing employees. What do they have to do to get that bonus? They have to commit to serving 24 months on the department, and then they get an extra $15,000. Uh, next up, uh, Syracuse, New York, up to $20,000 for laterals. Uh, National City and Seattle are at $30,000. National City uh, is a medium-sized California city. Uh, Seattle is one of the most challenged cities in the country with respect to recruitment. Uh, bluntly, I doubt a $30,000 lateral higher incentive is really going to do much with the recruitment problem in Seattle. It's going to take some more fundamental changes in city government for that to happen. North Las Vegas is up at $40,000 lateral bonus. 5000 of that 
is, uh, is a military bonus, so only prior service members uh, are going to be entitled to 5000 of that $40,000. Uh, then we get a smallish city uh, outside of Riverside County in California. This is the city of Hemet. Uh, that will be offering or is offering a $60,000 lateral bonus. And then at the top of the heap is Alameda, California. This is a Bay Area city, a smallish city as well. $75,000 lateral bonus. Uh, what about firefighters? Well, the numbers aren't as high for firefighters, but we're starting to see lateral bonuses where we didn't a year ago. Phoenix is at $7,500, San Jose at $10,000, and in Florida, Polk County uh, Fire Department is at $10,000 as well. What about public safety agencies? There's aren't, there aren't many of them in the country, and by public safety agencies, I mean combined police and fire agencies. Uh, but one of them has stepped in, one of the longest standing public safety agencies in the country, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and is now offering a $15,000 lateral bonus. Uh, these sorts of lateral bonuses don't do anything about the recruitment and retention problem, do they? In fact, they, they probably may help with uh, recruitment, particularly if you're up at $75,000 like the city of Alameda, but they cause another agency a retention problem, right? Because you, you're going to have officers who lose, or, or, or cities that lose officers because of the lateral bonuses of other agencies. It's going to need to be more in the way of structural changes for uh, the recruitment and retention crisis to be eased. Certainly, a big part of it is going to have to be a change in the way we look at public safety agencies. Uh, we're going to have to recast public, agents, uh, public safety agencies as the professionals that they are. We're going to have to pay them like the professionals that they are. And I think we're going to have to look at even more serious structural changes in the way of consolidation of agencies. Uh, if what we are seeing right now with recruitment and retention continues, smaller fire and police agencies just aren't going to be able to continue to be in business. Uh, last month, I talked about a Pennsylvania fire department that simply decided we're going to close. And I've seen that with police agencies in the last year. We're going to have to look at consolidation as a potential solution to this problem. So the news on recruitment and retention, not good, unless you're thinking of changing agencies. And maybe you want to go to the city of Alameda, California. Next up. An important consent decree case out of the city of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, the history of bargaining over disciplinary procedures in the Newark Police Department is a long one. Uh, it goes back to 1993 when the city and the unions, there's both a supervisory union and a rank and file union in Newark, 
when the city and the unions agreed to what became known as General Order 93-2 that modified the disciplinary process for union uh, members. Several years later, uh, the cities uh, ended up issuing a series of directives that changed the procedures that were laid out in General Order 93-2. New Jersey's Public Employment Relations Commission stepped in, found that the issues of disciplinary standards and disciplinary procedures were mandatory for bargaining, and the city's changes were rescinded. Uh, Fast forward, uh, boy, almost two decades, Uh, And in more than two decades, in April 2015, the city's mayor issued an executive order creating a civilian complaint review board in response to an investigatory report by the Federal Department of Justice. Uh, And all of that was initiated by a petition from the American Civil Liberties Union in New Jersey. Uh, A couple of months after creating the Civilian Review Board, we're now up to June 2015, the city unilaterally promulgated a disciplinary matrix that significantly modified the disciplinary procedures that were set forth in General Order 93-2. Uh, What's a disciplinary matrix? I'm sure pretty much everybody knows. Uh, This is a document that establishes the punishment ranges for usually most offenses that are laid out in an employer's code of conduct. Uh, The unions responded by uh, by filing an unfair labor practice uh, complaint, challenging the implementation of the Citizens Review Board and the changes to disciplinary processes that would be brought about by the disciplinary matrix. Bargaining actually occurred between the unions and the employer, and that led to a new general order. This is a general order that was numbered 0504 uh, that uh, preserved essentially the due process rights of officers under investigation. The new general order set forth specific investigatory procedures regarding allegations of misconduct uh, and was styled as providing formal procedures for the processing of complaints from the public. Uh, Within a month after the new general order was issued, the Federal Department of Justice filed a complaint in federal district court alleging that there was a pattern and practice of conduct by the Newark Police Division that had deprived individuals of their civil rights. Within a month after the Department of Justice filed a complaint, and we're now uh, only two months after the city has reached an agreement with the police unions on what disciplinary procedures are going to be used, the city and the Department of Justice agree to a 77-page consent decree, which, among other things, increased civilian oversight into uh, police, developed new procedures uh, and policies for handling internal affairs complaints and investigations, and specified 
a whole new set of disciplinary procedures for officers. Now, if I got a little confusing there, uh, yes, what I just said was the city agreed with the unions on a whole new set of disciplinary procedures. A month later, the Department of Justice sued the city seeking different disciplinary procedures and standards. And a month after that, the city, without involving the unions, agreed to a consent decree that changed or would change, purported to change, uh, what the city had agreed to with the unions. What happens next? In 2019, the city promulgates an entirely new set of general orders that unilaterally change many of the predecessor general orders pertaining to disciplinary procedures. The unions are back at it with the Public Employment Relations Commission. They file unfair labor practice complaints against the city, alleging that the implementation of the new general orders violated the city's obligation to bargain with the unions. Uh, the Public Employment Relations Commission sides with the unions and then the city challenges the decision in the New Jersey in a New Jersey appeals court. Whew, that is quite the history. Uh, but the case that I want to focus on is the decision of the appeals court on whether the city had any obligation to bargain. What is the city's argument? We know disciplinary standards and procedures are generally thought to be mandatory for bargaining. Uh, the city argues first that it properly exercised a management right in altering the disciplinary matrix and disciplinary procedures. And the court says, we can deal with that one pretty easily. Uh, the court says, and I'm quoting, courts have held that procedural safeguards associated with discipline and investigations intimately and directly affect employees and do not significantly interfere with the ability of a public employer to impose discipline. In other words, the court is saying to the city, disciplinary standards and procedures have been mandatory for bargaining for years and years. And the notion that they're mandatory for bargaining has been upheld by the courts for years and years. What's your next argument? Well, the city's next argument is that the unions waived their rights to negotiate in the disciplinary process by failing to intervene in the federal litigation culminating with the consent decree. The court says, no, not buying that one either. I'm quoting, neither the Department of Justice complaints nor the consent decree address the disciplinary process for the union's membership. The unions therefore had no reason, let alone a basis, to intervene in the federal court proceedings that ended up with the consent decree. Furthermore, the court says, we are unaware of any case law statute or PERC decision 
exempting a public employer from its collective bargaining obligations simply because the union failed to object to the public employer's pronouncement to unilaterally change employees' terms and conditions. Now, let me inter interject something before we get to the last argument that the city made. Is it a good practice to not intervene when there is a potential consent decree on the horizon and there's any remote possibility of that disciplinary standards and procedures will somehow be changed? Is that a good practice for a union? I don't think so. I'm putting my union lawyer hat on now. Uh, I think unions, when they see a federal civil rights complaint filed by the Department of Justice, if there is any chance that disciplinary standards and procedures may be addressed in the resolution of that civil rights complaint, and they're virtually all resolved by a consent decree, if there's any chance, you ought to be intervening. Uh, you, you should be, unless you do, uh, you could potentially see what happened here in Newark. And that is that the employer is going to very quickly enter into a consent decree and very quickly uh, change disciplinary practices and procedures and then take the position that the union has somehow waived its rights. Rather than facing the waiver arguments somewhere down the road, with whatever attendant risk comes to waiting, uh, that, and that risk may depend upon your state laws on bargaining, why not be intervening right up front? And the response to the, your petition to intervene is going to be one of two things from the employer and the DOJ. It's either going to be, you don't have any right to intervene because nothing we are doing is going to impact your collective bargaining rights, or it's going to be, you don't have any right to intervene without regard to whether or not we're going to do anything to impact your collective bargaining rights. If the answer is the first one, we're not going to do anything that impacts your bargaining rights, then the union is safe, right? because that is a promise that will be made in federal court. If the employer and the DOJ are saying, we may well be doing something that affects disciplinary standards and procedures, but you don't have any right to bargain, then you do need to pursue intervention and raise your bargaining rights in the federal court proceedings. There are federal appeals courts decisions, I'm thinking of, uh, a couple of the very prominent ones from the Seventh Circuit, think Chicago, and from the Ninth Circuit, think the West Coast, that say that unions do have the right to intervene to protect their collective bargaining rights, even in a civil rights lawsuit. Okay, back to the Newark case. I told you there was going to be another argument from the city. What's the next argument? The city says the changes that were implemented by its general orders pursuant to the consent decree were not mandatorily negotiable because they were authorized by the consent decree. The court doesn't even 
take a look at the issue of whether or not the unions were parties to the consent decree. And usually you'd only see this sort of argument if the unions were in fact a, a party. The court doesn't even get there. The court says, well, there's a huge problem with that argument. Quote, the consent decree's terms expressly contradict the city's argument. What terms? There's a sentence in the consent decree that says, quote, this decree shall not be deemed to confer on the civilian oversight entity any powers beyond those permitted by law, including by civil service rules and collective bargaining agreements. The court ends up concluding that, quote, contrary to the city's assertion, the consent decree does not supersede applicable state law or abrogate the city's contractual obligations pursuant to its collective bargaining agreements, end of quote. Why did I spend as much time on this case involving consent decrees? It's because the Department of Justice is very much re-energized in filing civil rights complaints. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak to a group of police associations a couple of weeks ago, and one of the other speakers was a representative of the Department of Justice talking about consent decrees. And I'll tell you, they're serious. If they think there's a pattern and practice of the violation of civil rights of citizens, this current Department of Justice is not going to hesitate to file litigation. And police unions ought to be aware of that fact and be prepared to intervene where necessary. I want to next turn to a couple of developments under the Brady Rule. Uh, just to recap, Brady versus Maryland is a relatively old Supreme Court opinion, uh, more than 50 years old at this point, and it creates an obligation on the part of the prosecution in a criminal case to disclose to the defendant any information that is potentially material to the whatever the criminal prosecution may be. That has led over time to a number of prosecutors uh, creating what are informally or formally known as Brady lists. And what are Brady lists? These are lists that are populated with the names of law enforcement officers uh, for whom Brady disclosures have to be made. What sort of disclosures are made that might get you on a Brady list. Uh, it could be, for example, sustained internal affairs complaints, particularly those dealing with dishonesty. Placement on a Brady list has become a very controversial topic in law enforcement because at times, in some places in this country, if you get put on a Brady list by a prosecutor, Employers will discipline you up to and including terminating you for not being able to perform the essential functions of the job. Many of those terminations are overturned either in arbitration or in the court system, but some of them, particularly in non-union states, uh, stick. And being placed on a Brady list is no laughing matter for a law enforcement officer. 
so that has resulted in a large pushback on the whole issue of Brady by law enforcement labor organizations. And the first of the two Brady developments I want to talk about is emblematic of the pushback occurring in state legislatures. A number of states have passed laws that provide that simple placement on the Brady list without any proof of underlying misconduct by the officer cannot be the basis to discipline the officer. Of course, if the officer has engaged in misconduct, the statute won't prevent disciplining the officer for the misconduct. It's just that placement on the Brady list without any proof of the underlying dishonesty or other misconduct cannot be the basis for discipline. California was the first state to pass such a law, pretty quickly followed by the state of Washington, and now we see statutes like that in states that are as diverse as Maryland, Iowa, and Arizona. The development that I want to talk about is that we've got a newcomer to the list of laws uh, concerning Brady lists, and that is Florida. We're going to post in the show notes the amendment to the Florida Peace Officers Bill of Rights, that's section 112.532 of the Florida statutes. We're going to post the entire Bill of Rights that now contains a new section 7 that deals with Brady lists. So uh, what does this new section 7 say? It says, and I'm quoting, a law enforcement officer or correctional officer may not be discharged, suspended, demoted, or otherwise disciplined or threatened with any of that discipline by their employer solely as a result of a prosecuting agency determining that the officer's name and information should be included in a Brady identification system. End of quote. The new statute provides the exception that you see in the other statutes, the California and Maryland statutes, that says that this doesn't prohibit an officer's employer from disciplining the employee based on the underlying actions of the officer. Uh, however, it does prevent discipline for simple placement on the Brady list. This whole issue of a legislative response to Brady has been a fascinating one to track because it seems completely unrelated to the politics of the legislature and the governor in question. So uh, the first statute that passed, California statute, uh, at the time you had, and still, you have Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives in California, they call it the Assembly, and the Senate. So Democrats were in charge of both houses of the legislature, and you had a Democratic governor. I think of that as a triple D sort of state. The same thing was true of Maryland. That's another triple D state, as is the state of Washington. However, Iowa, which passed what is maybe the most comprehensive of these Brady laws, and Arizona and Florida were at the time they passed their laws, triple R states with Republicans in charge of 
both houses of the legislature and the governor's office. Uh, and you would think that something like these Brady statutes, you'd think that they might be related to politics one way or the other. They don't seem to be. They seem to be independent of politics, which is not only, I think, unexpected, but very refreshing. The other Brady issue that I'd like to talk about is an unusual case that comes to us out of New Hampshire. New Hampshire is one of the few states that has a statewide Brady list. Uh, they call it an exculpatory evidence schedule. This is something maintained by the New Hampshire Department of Justice and placement on the list is limited to officers quote, who have engaged in misconduct, reflecting negatively on their credibility or trustworthiness, uh, end of quote. This case involves an officer, former officer actually, for the town of Lisbon, New Hampshire, who files a state court lawsuit saying the town's actions caused him to be placed on the list in violation of state and federal law. And in particular, in violation of his due process rights. You may remember from prior podcasts that there's a general trend in the law right now that officers have due process rights before they can be placed on a Brady list. Those due process rights may include the right to notice, the ability to challenge placement on the list, and the ability to appeal the decision of a district attorney who maintains the Brady list. So that's almost certainly what Doe is alleging in this state court lawsuit. Well, when you initiate a lawsuit, you're typically filing a legal document known as a complaint. And that's what Doe's lawsuit starts with, is a complaint. By oversight, where Doe is trying to proceed anonymously, as John Doe, uh, apparently a single page of the original complaint contained a word processing pathway that included Doe's actual name. Not really good practice there by the lawyer. You don't, even with your word processing pathways, want to identify who clients are, but nonetheless, that's what happened. Uh, this case ends up being removed into federal court by the employer, by the town, uh, a defendant in a state court case where there are federal issues identified has a right to remove a case from state court into federal court. So this case bounces over to federal court. And one of the first things that happens is that Doe files a motion to redact that word processing pathway that contains his name. The town's okay with that. Doe's obviously okay with that, but somebody else isn't. And who's the somebody else? His name is Eugene Volokh. Volokh is a UCLA law professor. He styles himself as a libertarian, and he's one of the more famous law school professors in the country. Most law school professors 
aren't famous except perhaps in the eyes of their law students. Volokh is an exception. He's written a blog for many years. It's called The Volokh Conspiracy, and he's very prominent politically in conservative and libertarian politics. Volokh intervenes in the lawsuit that's now over in federal court, and he intervenes for one purpose. He says, I want to know John Doe's name. And why does he want to know the name? He contends that he could not write about the case in his academic work, at least effectively do so, uh, and his blog because of Doe's anonymity. And that issue winds up before the Federal First Circuit Court of Appeals. And the court says, we're going to allow Doe to proceed anonymously. Uh, why? And the court says, you got to take a look at the uh, statute that created this statewide Brady list. The court says, and I'm quoting, the interests provided by New Hampshire's decision to provide Doe with a court hearing under the state statute before publicizing his listing on the Brady list are obvious. What are they obvious? What's obvious? The court says the opportunity for pre-publication challenges mitigates due process concerns. Uh, and ensures that the listings are more thoroughly checked and vetted before being publicized. Quote, the listing is a form of official public branding by the state. The effects of such an official branding on one wishing to work as a police officer are likely to be immediate and concrete. End quote. Sorry, Professor Volokh, we are not going to unseal the listing uh, of in the word processing pathway of Doe's name, and we are going to preserve the anonymous filing of this complaint. Court ends up sending the case back to state court. Well, that's it for this edition of First Thursday. Uh, we hope you join us in uh, January when we have our seminar on police union leadership in Las Vegas. We're going to be at a new hotel in Las Vegas, what used to be known as Bally's and I believe is now known as the Horseshoe. Uh, we have, at least for the time being, decided the Flamingo is not the place for us. And please, no applause when I say that. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving break and look forward to speaking with you in next month's first Thursday. This is Will Aitchison signing off. <music>